The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to look today at Eastern Orthodoxy. Can't cover everything, but I want to pull out um, key historical events and use those as a way of keying into the theology that underlies Eastern Orthodoxy. <clears throat> Not only is about this room, but my throat goes in about five minutes of Scientology. Is it, is it a really hot and dry room? It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. First thing to do is to talk about the issue of authority. Authority in the Eastern Orthodox Church is rooted very much in the so-called seven ecumenical councils. <clears throat> ecumenical is generally spelt in this context with an O-E at the start. Seven ecumenical councils. <clears throat> I'll give you one on my list. First Council of Nicaea, 325. Constantinople. Date of Constantinople? I taught you well, obviously. I earned my money last term. Council of Ephesus. 431. Council of Chalcedon. Date of Council of Chalcedon? 451, yeah. Constantinople 2. Constantinople 2. 553, Constantinople 3, it's inevitable with Constantinople being, or Byzantium being the central city in the east, that your major uh, councils are generally going to take place there. Constantinople 3, that's 680 to 681, and then the second council of Nicaea in 787. And each of these councils dealt to an extent with a Christological issue. <clears throat> Constantinople deals with Arianism, uh, Nicaea deals with Arianism. Constantinople deals with the Nestorian issue. Ephesus, oh sorry, no, Constantinople didn't deal with Nestorius, Constantinople with Apollinarius. Council of Ephesus deals with Nestorius, Nestorianism. Chalcedon deals with Eutychianism. Apollinarianism and Eutychianism essentially attempts to confuse the natures of Christ. Nestorianism essentially an attempt to separate the natures of Christ in a way that undermines the unity of the person. Constantinople II deals with the three chapters controversy. This was where the Emperor Justinian, his condemnation of some quasi-Nestorian writings was upheld. <clears throat> Constantinople III, the Monothelite controversy. How many wills does Christ have? Does he have one will, two wills? And Nicaea II deals with iconoclasm. And as we shall see in the East, iconoclasm is intimately related to Christology. All of these councils fun deal fundamentally with <coughs> the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine, if you like, when we go back to Nicaea I, we can say, 
the doctrine of the second person of the Trinity as it connects with Trinitarian theology. So the real foundations for Eastern Orthodoxy lie in these seven councils. And they reflect the classic preoccupations of Eastern Orthodox theology, that is Trinitarianism and Christology. And even the last council on iconoclasm, when we come to talk about iconoclasm in a little while, it will become clear that iconoclasm is intimately related to Christology. The understanding of authority in the Eastern Orthodox Church, to this day, I mean, Eastern Orthodoxy in some ways has not changed that much over a thousand years, uh, remains very much that the Church possesses uh, a charismatic authority on the basis that it is, if you like, the visible manifestation of the spiritual community of God and is therefore guided in its decisions by God. It has the Bible, it has the liturgy, it has the sacraments, it has the Holy Spirit deifying its people, both as individuals and as a community. The church reflects here on earth, if you like, the Trinitarian communion of the persons of God in heaven. Therefore, authority, while in Rome authority is rooted very much in the Pope and the College of Cardinals, in Eastern Orthodoxy, there is no, if you like, single figure like the Pope. There are certain similarities between the understanding of authority, but there's no single figure like the Pope. In the ancient world, Byzantium, Constantinople, the great sea there, called the shots, but that was to a large extent um, a voluntary matter. It was not part of the essence of the sea of Constantinople. And these councils are a manifestation of the wider understanding of the church as the means of deciding doctrine. I've got a quote here from Clendenin's uh, book, Eastern Orthodox Theology, from George Florovsky. It will be no exaggeration, he says, to suggest that councils were never regarded as a canonical institution, but rather as occasional charismatic events, i.e. the normal state of the church for um, life, interacting with God, if you like, is the church itself. Councils are called occasionally in an emergency to deal with specific issues. There is no theory which says, oh, every time we need to make a decision, we need to call a council. Councils exist as occasional happenings. And Florovsky goes on to say, the ultimate authority is vested in the church, which is forever the pillar and foundation of truth. This is not primarily a canonical authority in the formal and specific sense of the term, although canonical strictures or sanctions may be appended to conciliar decisions on matters of faith. It is a charismatic authority, grounded in the assistance of the Spirit, as the Bible said, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So councils then, occasional charismatic gatherings, if you like, for resolving doctrinal crises. And it arises from a situation in the early church, of course, where uh, it rapidly becomes clear that, if you like, while in one sense uh, the scriptures are enough, in another sense the scriptures need to be interpreted. Who does the interpreting of scripture? The church decides that it is the church community, if you like, as infused by the Holy Spirit, as in union with Christ, that interprets scripture. It's one of the ways, those of you who were in the early church class last term, know, it's one of the ways that the problem of overcoming who's reading scripture correctly and who's reading scripture incorrectly uh, is, is dealt with by the early church. 
So these are the great councils then. If you chat to an Eastern Orthodox person, these are the councils they will look back as giving them their basic doctrinal definitions, the basic cue. <coughs> they do not recognize any later councils as being ecumenical. Constantinople 4, in 869-70, formalized the condemnation of a man called Photius, who we'll meet a little bit later on. That council is regarded as non-ecumenical. No subsequent councils are regarded as ecumenical. The Photian schism, as it's known, formalizes a kind of break between East and West, and although the, the, the sort of wound is healed and then reopened again periodically, never again do you have the sort of full East-West consensus that you allegedly have at these seven councils here. So no subsequent council is regarded as ecumenical. Distinctives now. Has anybody got a, is there a spare icon floating around I can borrow? <laughs> the iconoclast controversy. Various things happen <clears throat> in the latter part of the first millennium, beginning of the, the second millennium, that slowly drive east and west apart. There are various breaches down the way. It's inevitable. The empire is huge. The west is increasingly dominated politically by the Franks. The east is being run from Byzantium. The east, of course, has to face the problem of the Turks. The west doesn't face the problem of the Turks in quite this form at this particular point in time. So there are various political issues that feed into the slow parting of the ways of the two traditions. There are also theological emphases that emerge that are very different within the two. The first thing highlighted is called the iconoclast controversy. You remember we talked about this earlier on. It poses a challenge to both East and West. The iconoclast controversy. Orthodoxy is a strongly aesthetic religion. Remains so to the current time. One of the reasons I think why it proves to be attractive to 21st century people is precisely that. We ourselves live in a very aesthetic, image-dominated age. Television, internet. We think often with pictures, if you like. The problem that Reformed theology and Evangelical theology, of course, was based is where do you fit the aesthetic into a theology that is primarily concerned with words and language? I think one of the attractions of Eastern Orthodoxy today is its aesthetic appeal. You have a similar phenomenon in the 19th century when you have the rise of the Anglo-Catholic movement in England. Where are the strongest Anglo-Catholic churches in the inner cities? Because they provide people who work in factories and live in slums with a little haven of aesthetic beauty on Sunday. So I think there is a little bit of that uh, comes through today. But there is no doubt that Eastern Orthodoxy is a profoundly aesthetic religion, highly elaborate uh, liturgy, highly elaborate church ritual, and at the centre of it all, um, a culture of icons, these beautiful pictures that feature so heavily in uh, Eastern Orthodox worship. Just give you a few dates first, and then we'll go and actually look at the theology of icons. There are two uh, parts of the iconoclastic controversy, uh, one which runs from 726 to 780. The major icono duel, which is the opposite of an iconoclast, an icono duel, a servant of icons at this point, is John of Damascus. 
John of Damascus, who, if you read medieval theology, you'll find him cited by Western authors as well. A lot of the great Eastern thinkers, Dionysius, John of Damascus and company, cited by medieval Westerners as well. Reminding us, of course, that even though we talk about two traditions, there is a kind of fuzzy boundary between the two of them. Second phase of the, uh, oh, this, this culminates in 787 with Nicaea II which affirms the icono-dual position, the legitimacy of using icons in worship. There is then a shorter period of iconoclasm from 815 to 843. Finally, finishes when the Empress Theodora. Interestingly, the first period of iconoclasm ends when the Empress Irene intervenes to put an end to it. The second period of iconoclasm ends when the Empress Theodora intervenes and re-establishes the permanent value of icons. And the major iconodule at this time, I've heard of John of Damascus, I'd never heard of this guy, Theodore of Studio. He's the kind of guy that you could quote falsely in a lecture and people would just tick and think you were learning because nobody would ever go and bother checking to see whether the quote really existed or not. Um. <coughs> The theological significance of icons, however, first of all, they're a means of veneration, obviously. Now, of course, Catholics make a similar distinction. You could turn around and say, but ah, but surely when you start venerating a picture, that is a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry that you're venerating a picture. Of course, Greek Orthodox somewhat uh, wiser than to fall straight into that trap. The argument is that the picture is merely a representation which functions as a kind of channel that allows you to adore the person behind the picture. So when you meditate upon that picture of Christ, you are not worshipping the picture, you're worshipping Christ himself. Or I've given you the picture here of good old St Nicholas. We'll come back to St Nicholas a little bit later on. But St Nicholas you're not adoring the picture of St. Nicholas. You're adoring St. Nicholas. Ah, you say, you're adoring St. Nicholas. Isn't that idolatrous in itself? You're adoring a human being. Of course, if you wait until later on when we come to theosis, all will be made clear, I suppose. But the idea is, of course, that you're not actually worshipping St. Nicholas. You're worshipping St. Nicholas as his deified in union with Christ. And therefore, the worship is really directed towards the glorification of Christ, not of St. Nicholas. So, it's even an attempt to be like, you might turn around and say, well, yes, weren't the um, children of Israel thinking that they were worshipping Yahweh when they worshipped the golden calf? <laughs> Does that not sort of undermine your case somewhat at this point? But these guys would not accept that. They would say that when you worship the icon, you are worshipping, if you like, those bits of Christ that come through the icon and are, in a sense, inseparable from it. <coughs> Secondly, and this is where the theology, I suppose, really kicks in. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. How do you get round that? Well, for the Greek Orthodox, everything changes at the Incarnation. They would say that icons are a way of taking the Incarnation seriously. What you have in the Old Testament is a, is a position where God, the immaterial, God the Father, comes down and he is unrepresentable and that remains the same today 
God in himself, in his essence, is unknowable and unrepresentable. But the second person of the Trinity has taken human flesh, has therefore condescended to allow himself to be representable. So there is a sort of dispensational change, if you like, at the incarnation, which means that God is no longer unrepresentable, but is in fact uh, can be portrayed in iconic art. Now I haven't given you an icon of Christ here because I don't want to offend anybody, but if you look at this icon, you get some idea. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But icons are not, and are self-consciously not, accurate portraits of humanity. They are idealized portraits of humanity. And iconic portraits of Christ are idealized portraits of Christ, trying to bring out the fact that though he is incarnated, yet he is still divine. That there is still a transcendent dimension to him, even when incarnated. So icons never self-consciously attempt to present, if you like, a historically accurate picture of what they represent. They present an idealized, divinized picture of what they represent. On the basis that in so doing, they point towards the deep truth, if you like, the Chalcedonian formula. Christ is one person, two natures, unmixed, inseparable. Orthodoxy also draws a clear distinction between the Father and the Son on this score. Orthodox art never attempts to portray the Father. The Father is invisible. The Father has never condescended to manifest himself in the form of human flesh. Therefore, he is unrepresentable as a human being. So the transcendence of the Father is contrasted, if you like, with the condescension of the Son in icons. Got a little quotation here. There's a very, very good essay on the meaning of icons by Uspensky in this volume. And I'll just quote you. Uh, the icon of Jesus Christ, the God-man, is an expression of the dogma of Chalcedon in image. Indeed, it represents the person of the Son of God who became man, who by his divine nature is consubstantial with the Father, and by his human nature is consubstantial with us, similar to us in everything but sin, in the expression of Chalcedon. During his life on earth, Christ reunited in himself the image of God and the image of the servant about whom Paul speaks. The men who surrounded Christ saw him only as a man, making the very valid point, I suppose, there that the uh, apostles themselves saw Christ, saw his humanity, saw God represented in physical form. The men who surrounded Christ saw him only as a man, albeit often as a prophet. For the unbelievers, his divinity is hidden by his form of a servant. For them, the saviour of the world is only a historical figure, the man Jesus. Even his most beloved disciple saw Christ only once in his glorified, deified humanity and not in the form of a servant. The transfiguration, very important, of course, uh, in iconic theory. This was before the Passion, at the moment of the transfiguration. But the church has eyes to see just as it has ears to hear. This is why it hears the word of God in the gospel, which is written in human words. Similarly, and this is the, the crunch of the quotation, it always considers Christ through the eyes of an unshakable faith in his divinity. This is why the church depicts him in icons, not as an ordinary man, but as the God-man in his glory, even at the moment of his supreme hum humiliation. Unshakable faith in Christ's divinity is precisely the reason why in its icons the Orthodox Church never represents him simply as a man who suffers physically, as is the case in Western religious art. And the same goes for the saints as well. 
The saints are never represented as merely human beings. They are human beings participating in union with God. And that is why St. Nicholas looks like this. That's why he looks, you know, if you compare him suspiciously like St. Athanasius, if you compare an icon of Athanasius, or suspiciously like St. Cyril. It's because, if you like, it's what they have in common that's the important thing, and that is the impact of their union with God, not what distinguishes them as individuals. So that then <clears throat> is the icon, and it's linked. The, the Second Council of Nicaea is known as the triumph of orthodoxy. And that is reflected in orthodox liturgy in one of the so-called Kontakions. Kontakion, Kontakion is a kind of verse sermon, or we might say a, a red prayer a homily that focuses on a particular aspect of Christian theology. And can anyone let me have a spare copy of the Kontakion? Is there a spare copy floating around? Any of you who have ever been to a Greek, thanks. Any of you who have ever been to a Greek Orthodox service will know these guys don't take any prisoners on liturgy. The services go on for a long time and they're highly uh, elaborate. A friend of mine who did his theological degree at Union Seminary in New York um, used to regale me with sort of hilarious stories of how um, the Union Seminary, because it's so trendy, used to invite the Greek Orthodox to come and do services. But of course, these guys don't take any prisoners on the kind of feminist issue uh, or on their liturgy. And used to have this sort of bizarre situation where these guys would be going through the liturgy while... Um, various women and radicals were kind of chaining themselves to bits of the chapel and crying <laughs> and screaming. Uh, uh, and these Greek guys, they just carried right on. They didn't care. <laughs> so, um, anyway, look here. <clears throat> this, is, this is a prayer, a kontakion, or a, kind of a little homily that would be said in relation to an image of Christ on the Feast of the Triumph of Orthodoxy. No one could describe the word of the Father, i.e. the word of the Father, the Logos, is transcendence consubstantial with the Father and therefore transcendent. But when he took flesh from you, O Theotokos, the Theotokos being Mary, Mary of course, very important in Eastern Orthodoxy because she is the means by which God manifests himself in the flesh, he consented to be described and restored the fallen image to its former state by uniting it to divine beauty. We confess and proclaim our salvation in word and images. So the icon is a highly theological, highly didactic thing. Um, this afternoon, what I'll try to do is put a couple of links on the um, course webpage to, there are a number of um, icon web pages out there with great examples where I, I lifted this from this morning. Um, I think you can order this for $4.50 in a little frame. Uh, the little icon of St. Nicholas. Um, there are guys out there who make them, but it'll give you some idea of the beauty uh, I often think that it's the same with Roman Catholicism when you go into a Roman Catholic cathedral or you go into an Orthodox church you realise that Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are not simply the same as Protestantism but with different doctrines they are completely different cultures in some ways completely different attitude to the world and to worship and to life in general and you get that very very strongly I think when you reflect on these icons and try to uh, imagine how they fit into uh, Eastern Orthodox life and practice. 
So that then is the icons. I want to come back and uh, look at those again a little bit later on when we talk about theosis. <clears throat> come now to the Photian schism, as it's called. The great schism of the 11th century was, followed, was, was preceded by increasing distance, as I mentioned, between the two uh, groups. The Photian schism, its origins lie in two different tensions that existed between East and West. The first of all is the papacy. The tension that existed between the claims of Rome and the claims of the great seas in the East. It tended to ebb and flow with Rome's political prominence. Not because Rome didn't always make universal claims to authority, but because, of course, it's only when times are good and money's coming in and you've got army and soldiers, etc., etc., on hand, it's only at those times that you can back those claims up. So there are great periods in the early Middle Ages where the two groups live together fairly harmoniously because whatever theoretical claims Rome makes, Rome hasn't got the muscle to enforce them. The problem comes at times where Rome is doing relatively well and has the power to back up its claims with action. There is the Great Sea of Rome in the west, but in the east, of course, you've got four, the four great seas. Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. All of which have varying degrees of um, claims to authority and prominence. Antioch can claim, uh, Jerusalem can claim apostolic background. Constantinople, of course, is effectively the capital of the Eastern Empire. So these are not minor players. These are big players. And there's always going to be a struggle between the guys who run these four seas and the Pope at Rome when the Pope at Rome starts to try to call the shots over in the East. So that's the first problem. And so in Rome, I've got a little note here. Rome, of course, makes its case on biblical grounds, argues the meaning of uh, you know, the investiture of Peter, if you like. Um, but for the first five centuries, it's quite clear, I think, when you read the documents, that the Rome is not calling the shots. Bishop Ambrose, without doubt at the end of the fourth century, Bishop Ambrose is the most powerful bishop in Western Christendom. And he's at Milan. He's not at Rome. So, <clears throat> you have this situation then. And prior to 850, various Gothic problems, uh, Frankish problems in the West caused an increasing centralization of the church. Political power is increasingly concentrated on the Sea of Rome. The second issue, and this is a more complicated one, but a more famous one, I suppose, is the Filioque Clause. Originally, <coughs> the church decided that uh, the son is begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. At some point, probably in the 6th century, the West interpolate an extra bit into the, claw, into the uh, Trinitarian formula, that the Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but also from the Son, and from the Son. That's what filioque means, and from the Son. It was put into the creed at the Council of Toledo, the third Council of Toledo. Don't ask me what happened at the first two Councils of Toledo. I'm going to clue 589. Appears to have emerged in Spain as an idea. No real tension until the 9th century. 
when a group of Frankish monks in Jerusalem started using it in their recitation of the creed. So you have Jerusalem, it's primarily an eastern sea. You have a lot of orthodox guys and monks there, but you also have western monk missionaries, if you like. Now remember, we're not talking about a church of the west and a church of the east, really, at this point. They're all part of the one Catholic church. But the monks from the west start to use the filioque clause. Why did they do this? We don't know. It is, I think, pretty well established fact that you will more often than not, certainly in religious and political circles, fall out with the people you are closest to rather than the people you are furthest away from. And you do that by emphasising the boundaries, by emphasising the small things that distinguish you from the group that might be mistaken for you if you don't emphasise them. So I suspect it's not being too speculative to say that there's some kind of tension in Jerusalem that means the Western monks want to distinguish themselves from their Eastern counterparts, whether it was a theological, cultural, whatever reason. And they start emphasizing the filioque clause because it's the one thing that distinguishes them from their Eastern counterparts in Jerusalem. That's Truman speculation based upon observation of modern day Presbyterianism. <laughs> it, may not, it may not apply <coughs> almost 1,500 years ago. <coughs> but I wouldn't mind betting that it does. It causes tension. The matter is referred to the Pope, to Leo III, who suppresses this activity. It's a kind of horrible sign of what is to come, but Leo III doesn't want to fight on this issue at this particular point in time. Why do the Eastern Orthodox object? Two reasons. One, it's an addition to the creed. The creed itself is established and it cannot be altered. And yet some Timpot council in Toledo go and add something to the creed. Goes against Eastern Orthodox understandings of authority. Goes against Eastern Orthodox understandings of how the creed should be read. It's the old confessional revision issue. An early example of <coughs> confessional revision, I suppose. This council, Toledo III, is not an ecumenical council. It doesn't have a consensus of East and West. What right does it have to alter the decisions of a council of the universal church, where everybody, at least they thought, that everybody is represented, and it makes this decision under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and a bunch of Spanish monks come along, have a council, and they change it, and they add a clause. So first of all, it's an addition that strikes at the very heart of orthodox understandings of authority. Secondly, the second reason they objected to it is they thought it was wrong. It is incorrect both procedurally and theologically. <clears throat> the difference, we might say now, is very subtle. I remember having a colleague at Nottingham University who said, you know, if I had to write an essay on why the filioque clause is important, he said, I could do it on the back of an envelope. So I really don't understand what all the trouble is about. But you've got to remember, I suppose, that the doctrine of the Trinity involves the very identity of God himself. And therefore, little modifications to the doctrine of the Trinity have ramifications. You're not just tinkering with um, a bit of trivia, you're messing around, if you like, with the very way that God and his activity is understood in the world. My colleague's comment, I think, is typical of a time where, and most of you will be fed up with me saying this, um, I've said it so often, but functionally, 
the Protestant church is Unitarian. Even the Reformed church, I think, is functionally Unitarian. You ask most people on a Sunday why the Trinity is important, they won't be able to tell you. They'll be modalists or they'll be tritheists, but they almost certainly won't be Trinitarians if you actually push them. That's not the case in the East. Eastern Orthodoxy is at its very heart absolutely Trinitarian. But when you start fiddling around with the uh, doctrine of God as Trinity, as these guys did in the 6th century, you've got to have chapter and verse. Because Eastern Orthodox regard the very identity of God as being at stake at this point in time. I think, yeah, we'll carry on for a little bit longer. <clears throat> what is the difference then between Eastern and Western understandings of the Trinity? To an extent, it relates to starting points. For the Eastern, God's essence is a great mystery. They take as basic the three hypostases. Starting point, if you like, is that God exists in three persons. The threeness is right at the very heart of where they start thinking about the Trinity. And they work out the relationship between those three hypostases based on the fact that the three hypostases are different. So they start with threeness. They're not so concerned with unity, they start with threeness. And they work out the relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit based on the fact of their threeness. In the West, the situation is different. Augustine, Boethius, these are the guys who set the agenda for Trinitarian discussion in the West to a large extent. Where do they start? The unity of God. The Western thinkers start with the unity of God. Now, in all of this, I'm drawing a very simple picture here. I'm aware that there is cross-fertilization between East and West. The situation is not as sharply drawn in reality as I'm drawing it here for the sake of getting it all done in a lecture. But basically speaking, the East is happy with the threeness of God, and works from the threeness to work out the relations to, uh, of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other. In the West, you have a unity of essence. The problem, therefore, becomes the threeness. And if you look at Augustine, and then you look at Boethius, you come up with the idea that the diversity is rooted in the relations. In the East, the diversity is rooted in the persons. In the West, the diversity is rooted in relations. And your understanding of persons is built upon your understanding of the relations. So there are many, many formal similarities between the two. But in the East, you've got the three persons taken as basic from which you work out the relations. In the West, you've got the relations, if you like, taken as basic from which you work out the persons. And this means, of course, that you've got to have some way of distinguishing the three persons of the Trinity in accordance with their relations. Well, Father and Son are easy. Father comes from the Son. Fine. Spirit. Spirit comes from the Father as well. Fine. Problem. How, in terms of relations, do you then end up distinguishing the Son from the Spirit? How do you distinguish the Son from the Spirit? Well, the answer that the West gives is, you say that the Spirit doesn't just come from the Father, but he also comes from the Son. So the relationship of each member of the Trinity to each of the other two members of the Trinity is different. Why is the Son not the Spirit? Because the Son only comes from the Father. Why is the Spirit not the Son? Because the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. 
So you see the difference between the three is construed in terms of relations. That is why I think the West felt the need to add the filioque clause. One of the reasons, there are other reasons as well, I think there are good reasons for adding the filioque clause, but one of the reasons is when your distinctions are built on relations, you need some way of distinguishing Son from Holy Spirit in terms of relations. Not a problem the East face at all. The East don't like the West construction of the Trinity because they think that by construing the diversity of the persons purely in terms of relations, you end up with a sub-personal view of personhood. And I have a certain sympathy with that, I think, myself. I'm not convinced that Augustine and Boethius do the best job on the Trinity. Certainly the most influential job on the Trinity, but I'm not sure that it's, it is the best job on the Trinity. So the first of these objections is that it leads to a sub-personal understanding. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's become very trendy among certain modern theologians to talk about you know, linking up with the Trinitarianism of the East rather than the West. The advent of personalist philosophy, the importance of personalist categories, plays over, I think, into an appropriation of certain aspects of the Eastern understanding of the Trinity. Um, second major problem <coughs> is that they see it as leading to a subordination of spirit to son. So you have these two problems then, that by emphasising the unity of the essence, and the essence is the principle of unity in the Trinity, <clears throat> you ultimately lead to a sub-personal understanding of the relations within the Trinity, and you also, it also ultimately leads to a subordination of the Spirit to the Son. In the East, for somebody like Gregory of Nyssa, the principle of unity is the Father. The principle of unity is not the essence of God, it is the person of the Father. Because he is the one who begets the Son from whom the Spirit proceeds. So the East regard the West's understanding of the Trinity as inadequate for a number of reasons. Though, looking through the books on Eastern Orthodoxy this week, there is clearly a division within the Eastern Orthodox themselves as to whether the filioque clause constitutes a heresy, i.e. an extremely serious error, or whether it simply constitutes a kind of heterodoxy. That it's an error that is tolerable in some ways or can be given a sort of good spin within a certain context. But that is the theological background. Um, I think the filioque clause is very good. One could not have Protestantism without it, of course, because it places the logos at the centre. It makes uh, Christianity essentially a word-centred religion. Word in terms of the word of God, the logos, and the word of God in terms of scripture. That there is no approach to the Father without going through the Son. The Spirit unites you to Christ, and Christ leads you to the Father. So the filioque clause fulfills, for me, a useful function in emphasising the Christ-centred nature of Christianity. And I'm not convinced, if you like, that one can't in some way marry the personalism of the East with the filioque of the West and come up with something that is really a rather good understanding of the Trinity that retains the Christ-centred nature and the personal nature of God. I'm not over-keen on... Um, Van Til's idea that God is three persons and God is one person. Not because I'm not keen on what he's trying to say. I think what he's trying to say there is very good. I just feel it's unnecessarily confusing terminology uh, to use the language of personhood for the oneness of God when the church has never done that. 
Um, to me, it's a, if you like, I'm in agreement in substance, but I feel that it could probably have been expressed uh, in a clearer way. The church has developed a clear vocabulary for doing this. Why muddy the waters by, um, by tinkering around with it? All this, sorry? <clears throat> I'm going on what Scott Alford tells me about him on this point. Scott said, and Scott has said to me that he, I think, I think I'm being taped here, so I better be accurate. <laughs> I think Scott has said to me that he too regards it as a little confusing, but is in sympathy with what he's saying. I think what he's trying to say, from, what, from the description I got from Scott, what he's trying to say is that God is, in his very essence, personal. And I think that's a good thing, that the essence of God is not super personal or abstract, it's still personal. And I think that's a good thing. I just think that when you start talking about God as one person and God as three persons, it becomes, you know. What I've read of Van Til makes me believe that he isn't the greatest communicator. And I think even, <laughs> I think, I, I think even the most ardent Van Tillians would agree that whenever I, whenever I ask what I should read of Van Til, nobody ever says to me, read Van Til. They all say we should read Greg Barnes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that, that there is, there is an opaqueness to, what he's, to, to that particular idea that is unnecessary. Um, though the, the agenda behind it is pretty good, and I think that if you like the content, the material is good, it's the formal expression is somewhat confusing. So, all of this explodes in the Photianism. Photius. He's appointed Patriarch of Constantinople in 858. However, Photius's predecessor still alive. It's always bad news in the church when a bishop is appointed when some other bishop has been removed from his office. Photius's predecessor is a man called Ignatius. And the Pope, Pope Nicholas, decides after Photius is appointed that he's going to back Ignatius. This leads, of course, to a breach between the two seas. A whole host of issues rise up at this point. Primarily, of course, the right of Rome to interfere in the domestic problems of the Sea of Constantinople. So it's a, it's a question of the, of the Rome, if you, of Rome, if you like, playing, playing the universal jurisdiction card at this point, and deciding that it's going to back Ignatius rather than, um, <coughs> uh, uh, rather than Photius. At the same time, missionaries' activity of both Byzantium and Rome is going on in, uh, among the Slavs, the Slavic people. Eastern Europeans. It brings, of course, to a head immediately the issue of the filioque. When you've got missionaries working in the same territory, what are they going to do? They're going to emphasize those things that distinguish them from the people who might be mistaken for them because they're so close, but aren't really them. That's, and I don't mean that in a cynical way, that's the way it tends to happen. We have a saying in Britain, you know, that your political opponents sit on the benches opposite you. This is in the House of Parliament. Your political enemies sit on the chair next to you. The people that you most want to distinguish yourself from and that you're most worried about are the people in your own party, not the people in the opposition. Nobody's going to mistake the opposition for you, but somebody might mistake the guy sitting next to you on the benches for you. And I think that's what's going on here. You have missionary endeavour, you have Eastern and Western missionaries moving into what is now called Eastern Europe, and you immediately get emphasis on the distinctives that distinguishes those who come from Byzantium, Constantinople, from those who come out with the imprimatur of Rome. There is a real struggle that goes on in Bulgaria. 
Bulgaria is, was then what sort of Romania is today. It's the place where East and West meet. So you have missionaries from both sides uh, operating in Bulgaria. And you have the ruler of Bulgaria, a guy called Khan Boris, an unlikely name, but that's what he was called. Khan Boris, playing one side off against the other. First of all, he turns to the Greeks and he's baptized. But when the Greeks don't allow him to establish his own independent church and run it his way, he switches sides and decides to turn to Rome for support. Inevitably, of course, justifying and emphasizing his turn to Rome by focusing on those things that make Rome different from the East, the Filioque Clause. So here we have a situation where the Filioque Clause is becoming really controversial. While the Pope had up until this time, and the Filioque Clause has been around for a couple of hundred years, up until this time the papacy have soft pedal on it, they don't want to show down with the East over this one, now the Pope decides to swing all his weight behind it because it's politically useful. It will give him a foothold with Khan Boris in Bulgaria. So we now have a situation where the papacy, having previously suppressed the Filioque Clause in Jerusalem, not wanting to cause trouble, now decides that it's time to back the Filioque Clause and stir things up a bit in a bid for power in Bulgaria. 867. Photius responds by writing an encyclical letter. That's a letter that will be circulated among all the top brass, the seas in the Eastern uh, Empire. Photius writes a letter denouncing the Filioque. So for both sides now, the Filioque has become the point of distinction, the point that distinguishes East from West. But the emperor in the East, at this point, uh, acts to have uh, Ignatius, Photius's predecessor, reinstated. What happens is there's a council in Constantinople called by Photius that excommunicates the Pope. So the Pope is excommunicated by the East now. This, of course, is formalization of a very, very serious breach between Church and East and West. It is not in the Emperor of the East's interests to have a breach like that formalized in such a way. So he, he acts, he has uh, Photius deposed and replaced by his predecessor, Ignatius. He then sets up a second council in Constantinople in 869, which condemns Photius. There are less than a hundred bishops turn up to the first session of this council, only just over a hundred ever attend at any point. It's a small, unrepresentative council. Photius is condemned, and that would appear to be the end of the matter. However, there is a sort of slightly happy postscript at this point. Uh, Ignatius and Photius somehow become reconciled, manage to put their personal differences behind them. And in 877, when Ignatius dies, Photius is reinstated. And from 877 to 886, when he dies, the communion with Rome that was reinstated by Ignatius remains intact. So you have this short burst, if you like, explosive burst where the churches break apart, but then the rift is sort of healed and brought back together again. It all provides a background, however, to the so-called Great Schism of the 11th century.
from which ultimately there would be no uh, healing or resolution right down to the present day. Of course, one of the big issues in ecumenical discussions is um, the capacity or the incapacity of the Eastern Church to allow non-Eastern Christians to take communion. The schism of the 11th century persists to the present day. 1052, the Normans. Normans did a lot of damage in the 11th century, particularly to Britain, but uh, <laughs> they did a lot of damage in, in Italy as well. Normans are the preeminent military power, if you like, in Northern Europe at this particular point in time. And they forced, the Normans decided that they would force the Greeks in Byzantine Italy to conform to Latin usage. Those of you who know anything about the ancient world will know the southern part of Italy, particularly Sicily, primarily a Greek culture. If you go to Italy, to Sicily today, you will find Greek temples. Syracuse was a Greek colony. The Normans in Italy decide that they will make the native Italian Greeks conform to the Latin ritual. They will make them conform to Rome's distinctives. As a sort of tit-for-tat, Michael Carolarius, Patriarch of Byzantium, decides that he will make the Latin churches in the east, in Constantinople, do the same. Carolarius particularly objected to the use of unleavened bread in the communion service. <coughs> Carolarius hits back, it's tit-for-tat, it's the old diplomatic you know, you expel one of our spies, we'll expel one of yours, kind of thing. So Carolarius hits back. Uh, the, the Latin Rite people in Constantinople refuse to cooperate, so he simply shuts the churches down. This is the incident that leads to the great schism of 1054. 1054, Rome sends delegates to Constantinople, and it culminates in the excommunication of Michael Carolarius. And although there are attempts to reinstate unity after that, they're always half-hearted, they're always top-heavy, i.e. it's a few top brass getting together to try to reinstate unity. People at the lower levels of the church hierarchy, grassroots, never buy into it. So the final breach comes in 1054. But of course, as we've seen, there have been tensions for some time over the claims of Rome to universal jurisdiction and the various issues that arise out of the filioque clause. Anybody ever been to Istanbul here? Oh, it's a beautiful city. Um, the great uh, Hagia Sophia, St. Sophia's Cathedral, is still there. Uh, it's now a mosque and uh, the Muslims have smashed all of the faces off the icons because, of course, of the danger of representing anything divine in artwork. And it's mirrored by... Um, the Blue Mosque, which when it was built was the only mosque, well when it was built there were six minarets at um, Mecca and the, the Sultan who built the Blue Mosque wanted his mosque to be just as good as the one at Mecca, so he built his with six minarets as well, which forced the people at Mecca to build another minaret, so they got seven minarets on their mosque. But you have this amazing um, side of what was one of the preeminent centres of Christian worship in the ancient world in the Middle Ages is now a mosque. It's a sort of strange metaphor, really, for uh, what happened in the Middle Ages in Constantinople. If you get a chance to go, I would certainly suggest that you do. It's a very beautiful city. 
The schism, uh, as a, despite the schism, occasional relative friendly relations continue, but the distance gradually becomes unbridgeable. Um, Gregory VII, one of the great reforming popes, Hildebrand, Gregory VII, who did an awful lot to clean up the Church's Act after a sort of century of corruption. Gregory VII comes in and pushes through reforms, um, revitalizes the papacy, but of course, as the papacy is revitalized, so its claims to universal jurisdiction are revitalized as well. Um, attempts were made during the First Crusade uh, to try to bring the East on board, but essentially the First Crusade becomes a Western Crusade, a way of expanding uh, Western influence in the East, Antioch and Jerusalem fall to Western Crusaders, leading to the setting up of Latin patriarchs answerable to Rome. At times, uh, as in Antioch in 1098, the West sets up a Latin patriarch while the Greek patriarch is still in existence. Not a particularly ecumenical gesture, one has to say. Then in 1204, Byzantium, which has been in the possession of the Turks for a while, is taken by the Crusaders, the, the Latin Crusaders, and generally trashed, made the centre of a short-lived Latin kingdom. And I'll just, I'll just give you, uh, there are two councils, Lyon in 1274, and Florence, 1438 to 1439. The last two major councils that attempted to re-establish union between East and West. Both times paper agreement was reached. Both times the East failed to sell it to its people. It was seen as a sellout to Rome. So enough of the history then. I want to focus, we're running a shorter time, a little bit more on the theology of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. <clears throat> One important movement which actually caused one of the conflicts with Rome was the movement of hesychasm, a particular kind of monastic spirituality and piety that developed uh, in the monastery on Mount Athos in Greece. Those of you who've been to Greece will know the monastery on Mount Athos is still there. Greek Orthodox monasteries, I've never stayed at one, but they have a system where you know, if you're backpacking through Greece and you turn up and knock on the door of the monastery, you're allowed to stay there overnight. Sort of cheap way of getting around Greece, if you like. Um, if you're a man, right? <coughs> Sorry? It's only if you're a man. Yeah, well, I am a man, so, you know. <laughs> I can knock on the door and get in. I'm not quite sure. I assume the same applies to women monasteries in, in Greece, but I don't know. I'm sorry. They don't let, uh, I've heard stories of if, if there are cruise ships in the sea there with women on board, they don't let them come within sight All right. of, that, of that area. And it's, very, it's very much kind of a... I've not come across that. Because um, the monks often mix quite freely, you know, come down to town and they walk around town and the women in the towns and that. But, yeah. uh, so, travel stories, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I would love these sidetrack stories. They're far more interesting than anything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as, uh, well, as I said earlier on, Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, uh, well, if you think that sort of Reformed theology is unenlightened about women, then... Eastern Orthodoxy is probably not the tradition for you, I suspect. Um, it's pretty unenlightened all around on certain issues. Hesychasm, a particular kind of theology that comes 
from particular kind of it's theology and practice. One of the great things about the East is it's a very holistic understanding of theology. And this hesychasm, kind of piety that develops in Mount Athos in Greece. <clears throat> the important sources for hesychast theology are Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers. A chap known as Evagrius of Pontus. Pontus is the modern day area of Turkey along the Black Sea. Evagrius of Pontus. When I was in Turkey, we backpacked over right over to the east, what was really by the old Soviet border. And a friend of mine who could sort of con his way into anything um, managed to con some Turkish paratrooper into taking us up this mountain. And we drove halfway up in a sort of four by four, and then we had to sort of scramble up the rocks the other side. When you get to the top, there's a tiny little monastery there, abandoned now, full of beautiful iconic art. It's whole, you know, scary to think that these people were living there in the Middle Ages with almost no form of communication perched right on top of this mountain. Must have led to a very, very distinctive kind of Christian piety. Evagrius of Pontus, <clears throat> the Desert Fathers, collection of writings by um, the Desert Fathers, those monks who took themselves away from society off into the desert. Uh, Pseudo-Dionysius, who we mentioned in an earlier class, or Pseudo-Denis, as he's also known. Thought to be, of course, Dionysius the Areopagite, the convert of Paul and Maximus the Confessor. I've got a Roman Catholic friend in Cambridge who, um, he's got six boys, and he's named them all after um, Greek Orthodox patriarchs. <laughs> um, Maximus is one of them. And I went in to visit him one day, and Maximus came running up to me and punched me right in the groin. <laughs> I, I collapsed on the floor, sort of gasping for an ambulance, and all his wife could say, oh, Maximus, don't do that, it's not very nice. <laughs> So, uh, my heart was slightly warm when I found out Maximus had fallen off his uh, trampoline a few hours later and broke his shoulder. Which <laughs> was, uh, you know, serves him right for messing with me. Uh, anyway, we'll go back to Maximus. Uh, not Maximus of Confessor, Maximus the Confessor. What you have in these guys, what their theology gives to Greek Orthodoxy, is a strong liturgical bent. Liturgy is very important in the East, and for these guys, uh, liturgy is part of the mystical ascent to God. The liturgy talks about man's descent from God and man's ascent back to God. And by participating in the liturgy, the idea is that you partake of that ascent back to God. It is not just what you say, it's the context you say it in and what you experience as you say that is, uh, that is important. So, they're strongly liturgical, and you find that in Dionysius. Yes, he's a Platonic theologian, but he's also a liturgist, if you like. Has an understanding of how you, when you meet corporately as part of the church and participate in the liturgy, it, in a way, facilitates your corporate participation in God. <clears throat> Secondly, strongly apophatic. Talked about this uh, in another class, where theology is negative theology. You achieve knowledge of God by denying of him what is not true. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have boundaries. And as I said, you know, we tend to think of this perhaps slightly strange, but when we think about our own theological vocabulary, so much of it is apophatic vocabulary. God is infinite. What does that mean? God is not finite. But the apophatic theology also plays through into the understanding, not just, if you like, of intellectual doctrine, but of the way you live your life as well. Self-renunciation, 
the renunciation of the material world, the denial of the needs of your body, this is all part, if you like, of the negative theology of the East. The abandonment of earthly concepts about God is paralleled by the abandonment of earthly worries and cares. The ascent to God is not just an intellectual one involving propositions. It involves the whole of the human person in ascent to God. And it culminates in a mystical, uh, incommunicable experience of the so-called divine light, where God is known in an immediate, incommunicable way. The divine light is experienced. It's most elaborated in a guy I'm sure you've all read, <coughs> Simeon the New Theologian. And it was this idea of the direct experience of God as divine light in an incommunicable way, an ultimate experience, if you like, that uh, the West didn't like. It was pushing it too far. And somebody called Balaam, the Calabrian, took up the cudgels and attacked hesychasm as promoting a presumptuous form of theology. And the defence of hesychasm, the great opponent of Balaam the Calabrian, was Gregory Palamas, who is probably the single most important thinker in Eastern Orthodox tradition. Gregory Palamas, Archbishop of Thessalonica uh, in 1347. Palamas developed an understanding of uh, the Christian's ascent to God that involved a union with God of both mind and body. And time and again in uh, Eastern Orthodox thinking, the thinking is always more than just about the soul. It's a holistic, physical thing as well, salvation. He draws on the Cappadocian fathers. He's the man who makes the big distinction between essence and energies in God. We can never know God's essence. God's essence is hidden. What we can know is God's energies, the way he works in the world, if you like. It parallels, though I don't think it's, it's not quite the same as, the sort of communicable attributes of God in some ways. If we're looking for a sort of close Protestant or Western parallel. You can never know God in his essence for Gregory Palamas. You can only know him through his energies, supremely, of course, through the incarnation, Jesus Christ. God is not a nature, says Gregory for he is above nature. So we can know God in his effects, in his energies. We cannot know him in himself. And thus, Gregory regarded himself as preserving both God's transcendence. He's infinite. We can never know him fully, but also the reality of Christian knowledge and experience as well. And Reformed theology has similar distinctions that do a similar job that preserve the unknowable infinity of God but also undergird the reliable, finite knowledge and experience of God we have here on earth. And I don't know, but I wouldn't mind betting that if you explored um, Eastern Orthodoxy and looked at certain aspects of the Reformed tradition, you would find some very, very suggestive similarities. Hezekiah's teaching won out uh, and was affirmed by two councils in Constantinople in 1341 and 1351 where hesychasm, this mystical ascent to grasping God as 
His energy comes out of him like a divine light, triumphs. And hesychasm is one of the distinctive marks of Eastern as opposed to Western spirituality. And it points, of course, strongly towards the last thing I want to talk about today, and that's the concept of theosis. Or you would say deification. Theosis is one of the central, if not the central, pillar of Eastern Orthodox theology. It ties in with icons, ties in with the liturgy, ties in with the Christian life in general. What is it? It's the idea that human beings are, to a certain extent, deified. That the Christian life is, as Dionysius casts it, an ascent to God. You find the roots of it, of course, in Athanasius. One of the great things about the Eastern Fathers when they talk about the Incarnation is the richness of their understanding of the Incarnation. That the Incarnation is not simply an instrument but it was necessary so that Christ could become that, and so he could die. The incarnation is itself a singular, important, unique act of God's grace. And Athanasius makes various statements to the effect of it was necessary that God should become human so that human beings should become gods. God with a capital G should become human so that human beings should become gods with a small g. Eastern Orthodoxy never collapses the distinction between the creator God and creatures. What it emphasizes, if you like, is that the Christian life is marked by an increasing reunion of God and humanity. The supreme example of the union of God and humanity is, of course, in Christ himself. The East tends to downplay in its understanding of salvation the very categories that the West makes so much of. Sin juridical and legal metaphors in understanding God's action towards us. The East doesn't have such a big place for an all-embracing notion of sin and depravity. It does not tend to conceive of salvation in terms of justification, which it regards as a legal concept. It tends to conceive of salvation in terms of deification, which is they would say, though I, you know, they would say it is a more personalist way of looking at it. I find the whole idea of what is personal and not to be somewhat um, vague, a little bit like individualism, these kind of things. <clears throat> so, what is theosis? It is the thing that relates you as an individual believer to God's divine energies. It is, if you like, you working in tandem with the Holy Spirit to become more like God, to participate more and more fully in the energies of God, not in the essence of God. The essence of God is unknowable and far removed from us because it is infinite and perfect, but to participate in the energies of God, to be, if you like. It's, it's not the same as, but it's the nearest equivalent as what we have is sanctification leading to glorification. Not the same things, I don't think, really. I think the Greeks mean something different when they talk about deification in some ways. But the nearest equivalent we have is sanctification moving to glorification. But it also ties in, in a way that I think is not emphasized so greatly in the West, with the very bodies of the saints. That your human body is deified. That something ontological is done to human nature in the incarnation of Christ. 
that allows for the deification of you as a whole person. And this is why saints' relics are very important in the East. Why are the relics of saints important? Because they're deified. Because those physical remnants of the saints participate in some deep and profound and mysterious way in the energies of God. And it's again, it's why icons are important. I've got a couple of quotations I want to read you here about deification. First of all, I'll read you a section from Timothy Ware. There is nothing esoteric or extraordinary about the methods which we must follow in order to be deified. If a man asks, how can I become God? That's God with a small g. The answer is very simple. Go to church, receive the sacraments regularly, pray to God in spirit and in truth, read the Gospels, follow the commandments. The last of these items, follow the commandments, must never be forgotten. Orthodoxy, no less than Western Christianity, firmly rejects the kind of mysticism that seeks to dispense with moral rules. So how does deification pan out in everyday life? By you being a good and loyal member of the church. Hearing the word, participating in the sacramental life of the church, in the liturgical worship of the church by praying to God in spirit and in truth, and finally, by going out and living a life that patterns the life of Christ. So deification, then, is something that involves the whole human person, is located in the context of the church, but has an impact upon the whole human person. And as you are deified, as you become more like God, so God shines through you. And that's where you come to your icons. Go back to old St. Nicholas. We are not so much looking at Nicholas there in order to see what distinctively makes him St. Nicholas. We are looking there to see what distinctively makes him a deified person. And as I said earlier, that's why these guys often all tend, or it's one of the reasons why these guys often all tend to look the same. Because it's what they have in common that is crucial. What distinguishes them, length of beard, age, wrinkles, that's not important in an icon. What is important for the Eastern Orthodox is what makes that person the same as Athanasius, the same as St. Cyril, the same, if you like, if we, you or I were members of the Greek Orthodox Church, the same as you or I. It's the divine, deified aspect. I've got another little quotation this time from Clendenin's uh, book on icons. The divine likeness, therefore, is possible only for a renewed man in whom the image of God is purified and restored. The possibility is realised in certain properties of human nature, particularly in its freedom. The attainment of divine likeness is not possible without freedom because it is realised in a living contact between God and man. Man consciously and freely enters into the plan of the Holy Trinity and creates himself the likeness to God to the extent of his possibilities and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Very Pelagian, we would say, from a Western perspective here. Henceforth, by following Christ, by integrating himself to Christ's body, the church, man can re-establish in himself the divine likeness and make it shine forth in the universe. And that is what, and that is, that, that statement takes place in the discussion, context of discussion of the usefulness of icons. So what you have here, when you look at it, and when you say your Kantakion prayers in front of it, you have something of the divine, something of the incarnate revelation of God bursting through Nicholas, if you like, uh, to you. Finally, of course, theosis involves individual, but it's also corporate. Greek Orthodox emphasizes it's another of these elements that's been picked up by uh, certain modern theologians. The idea of the church 
The church models the life of the Trinity. As the Trinity involves different persons giving each other to each other in love and service, so the church should do the same. The model for the church, the model for the ethical, moral life of the church is the Trinity. The Trinity is a community, so is the church. Theosis, therefore, is in one very, very important aspect, not an individual thing at all. You become part of the body of Christ by participating in the Trinitarian, communitarian, communal life of the church. Theosis is, involves self-giving and it's interpersonal. Well, I guess, I mean, I've tried to be as sympathetic as I can in reading Greek Orthodoxy. I guess I should make a few uh, um, summary remarks at the end. Um, the strong points of Greek Orthodoxy, I think without a doubt, the emphasis on Trinity. If the Christian God is a Trinitarian God, then no church that doesn't emphasize God as Trinity is really worthy of the name Christian Church. And I think where the Greek Orthodox really score highly in their theology is their refusal to sideline the Trinity or to water it down into a kind of modalism or a tritheism. I think the Greek Orthodox Church is a witness for the Trinity. I think that is crucially important. I think its emphasis upon um, the social aspect of the Trinity is important. Having said that, I don't buy the modern idea that you get from certain systematicians that totalitarianism, etc., etc., um, bad people, it all comes from having a Western understanding of the Trinity, an emphasis on God's unity. It seems to me in the history, certainly the social history of Britain, it was often the Unitarians who had the most enlightened social philosophy. It didn't seem to be linked to Trinitarianism at all. The less Trinitarian you were, the more likely you were to have some kind of enlightened view of society. So I don't buy the arguments that you'll sometimes find trotted out by theologians that if only we could recapture the social view of the Trinity they seem to have in the East, all of our problems, ideological problems, would be solved. Thirdly, I think um, the whole business of icons, I'm just not convinced that the incarnation uh, allows us to completely ignore the commandments about making graven images and I think uh, in terms of intention I regard icons as graven images even though they're painted and not carved um, having said that I do you know I, nothing I like better you know than looking at icons I find them very very beautiful things but I'm not convinced that the theological rationale for them is entirely convincing um, I think I would have hesitations about the uh, strong Pelagian theology that underlies the notion of theosis. He used to regard Pelagianism, I think, as a Western problem. That for them, sovereignty of God and the freedom of man's will go together hand in hand. They don't construct their theology in a way that sees the problem in quite the way that the Pelagians and the Augustinians do. But it's still a problem for me, I think. So on the whole, I would say Eastern Orthodoxy, it's a balance sheet. I'm unconvinced by the mass conversions to Eastern Orthodoxy that die in the West. I've got enough friends who have contacts with Eastern Orthodoxy in the East uh, to know that American Eastern Orthodoxy and British Eastern Orthodoxy is not Eastern Orthodoxy as it takes place in Eastern countries. It's an American come British version of it. It's an idealized version of it. So I remain unconvinced by the uh, mass conversions. But having said that, the respect for tradition, respect for the Trinity, um, the refusal to go down the lowest common denominator line on theology, 
worship and practice are all things that I think we could learn from. So I'll leave it there. I hope I've given you some ideas. I hope you'll go off and read some of these guys for yourselves. Because I can't do it for you. <laughs> um, if I hear you correctly say that if you kind of get rid of the idea of deification here, undercutting the whole use of icons. <clears throat> you're, not, <clears throat> you're not undercutting the whole use of icons. But I think you are taking away what... There are a number of reasons why, why they use icons. Um, and I think if you take away deification, one of those important reasons has, has been taken away. And then, of course, can you separate their understanding of the incarnation from their notion of deification? I think if you were to follow through consistently, one would have to say then that yeah, ultimately maybe icons would have to go completely. Um, that seems to be a big part of the, the whole icon. If you get rid of that, then somebody may fall off yeah, I think if you put, if you then if you push through consistently, having got rid of deification, you'd probably end up with just no use for icons, if you like. Um, Daniel, in what ways would you say that the uh, American British version of Eastern Orthodoxy is ideal? I think the Church in Eastern Europe, the Orthodox Church, has been woefully corrupt in many ways. I think that the very nominalism that I, I, I'm not a donatist, the corruption of the Church doesn't mean I leave it. The, the, the authority of the church depends to me upon the word preached and the correct uh, administration of the sacrament. So just because the, word, the, the church is corrupt in the East, for me that's not a knockdown argument that Eastern Orthodoxy is wrong. As far as I can see it, the Protestant church in the West is pretty downright corrupt as well. Um, but reading Schaefer, chatting to guys who flirted with Eastern Orthodoxy, one of the problems they have with Western evangelicalism is the nominalism. It makes no difference to people's lives. And here in Eastern Orthodoxy in the, in the West, they see um, it making a big difference. People's lives are changed by it. And that's true in the West. It ain't true in the East. It's because it's different and it's novel, I think, in the West, that the nominalism is not so obvious. But you know, if you go to Greece and Turkey, or not Turkey, but you go to Greece, um, yeah, I've been to Orthodox service there. People wandering in and out during the service. They're chatting, picking their noses, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and you walk around Greece and people are leaving the churches and going straight off to the local adult theatre, this kind of thing. And the nominalism in the East among the Orthodox is just as bad as the nominalism in the West among the Protestants. But I think we have this idealised view of things Eastern, things a little bit different, a little bit mysterious, and that's attractive to us. Um, I said to somebody yesterday, you know, we're all damaged and disillusioned by our backgrounds to a certain extent. Uh, and if you're Eastern Orthodox, you can grow up and be pretty disillusioned by it. The question is, at some point, you have to think, well, everything else has got its problems. You know, all the problems I'm prepared to live with and the ones I'm not. And I think there's, there's a little bit of romanticism and a quest for a spiritual, if you pardon the phrase, a spiritual nirvana among certain Christians in the West. It drives a guy, I think Franz, Frankie Schaefer. Um, his father ruined Catholicism for him. I mean, Francis Schaeffer was certainly very difficult, having brought up a Francis Schaeffer to become Catholic. And clearly he felt so badly done by by his father, though I, I don't think he was, 